This morning's sermon is entitled, The Garments of God. Two Old Testament readings and two New Testament readings follow. Exodus 35, verses 4 through 19. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light, with its utensils and its lamps. And the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons for their service as priests. Leviticus 21, verses 10 and 11. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go in to any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 12, the earthly holy place. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, 
in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, the redemption through the blood of Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with the hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Mark 15, verses 33 to 39, the death of Jesus. And when the sixth hour, that is noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it, in this way he breathed his last, he, the centurion, said, Truly, 
this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, hope you're doing all right. I've had a decent week this past week. That was a lot of scripture we just read. Thank you, Johan, and uh, we're going to see if we can't make sense of all of that. Uh, I'm also hoping you can join us uh, for tonight's uh, Calvary uh, Ed talk uh, with uh, Stephanie Griswold, and I'm looking forward to that. And so hopefully you'll be able to to join us, particularly if anxiety is something that you've wrestled with or you uh, know some people that have wrestled with it, or perhaps you're a student that's wrestled with it, whatever the case might be. Uh, I think this will be a really uh, helpful and instructive time. I've heard Stephanie talk about anxiety. She's come uh, and uh, spoken to the ministry staff and uh, was uh, super helpful. So I encourage you to be there tonight, 7 o'clock. In any case, today we are taking another step forward in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And I've got something a little special for you today. Uh, this past week, my five-year-old uh, told me uh, that I had been working too hard, and so she decided she was going to write my sermon for me so that I would have more time to play with her and uh, not have to work so hard. So um, I thought that was very nice of her. I asked her what the sermon was about, and she said it was about Exodus. And when the Israelites came out of Egypt, I said, that's perfect, because that's like right where we are in our story, in our sermon series. So I said, we'll give it a go. So uh, I've got it here. You can maybe see it. I don't know how it's showing up in the camera, but, um, well, actually, actually, I think it goes this way here, but, but uh, really uh, helpful, important notes in here. And uh, so I told her I was going to add a few uh, comments of my own to it and that we would give it, we would give it a go. So we're going to do that uh, this morning. So we got Maley's uh, sermon for us this morning with a few additional comments from Pastor Gerald. But uh, last week, we looked at the blood sacrifices in the law. We've been examining the law of God, uh, this great gift that God gave to the Israelites as they came out of the land of Egypt. They were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and God gave them this law. We're going to continue looking at the law today, not looking at the blood sacrifices, but at the tabernacle where the blood sacrifices took place. So we're going to be focusing on the tabernacle today. And uh, as the Scripture has already been read for us, we've got four passages of Scripture, two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament. I try to weave these together and show the relevance of all of these as it relates to Christ's sacrifice And then ultimately, the way that Christ's sacrifice opens the way for us to be connected and to draw near to God. I think sometimes as Christians, we can take for granted our access to God. And I think in one sense, we should, right? I mean, that's what it means to be part of God's family. We don't You know, when college kids, you guys come back from college, right? You don't have to knock when you come back into your house, right? You're part of the family. And I think that's what it means to be part of the family of God. We can just let ourselves in, as it were. We can act like we belong because, in fact, we do belong. But familiarity has a way of breeding contempt. And so Jesus at one point said that a prophet in his hometown has no honor. So today I want to help us understand the greatness of our free access into God's presence in a way that keeps it from becoming just familiar and commonplace. 
We're going to see in today's texts and today's sermon that God paid a steep and awful price, the greatest price possible so that we could have free access to Him. So if you're a Christian this morning, my prayer for you is that you would be reminded about how privileged you are to come in to God's presence. You'd be reminded how much He loves you to have made a way for you to come into His presence. If you're not a Christian this morning, then my prayer for you is that you, even this morning, would step into the love of God that stands waiting and open to receive you. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to look through four uh, texts, two from the Old Testament, two from the New. We're going to start with our first Old Testament text, which is from Exodus 35. So if you have your Bible and you are following along, let me encourage you to make your way to Exodus uh, 35. I'll give you a quick recap of the story if perhaps you're new to the sermon series or new to the story of the Bible and aren't aware of where we're at in our sermon series. The children of Israel were down in Egypt in slavery. God led them out of Egypt into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, the land that He had promised to them. And on the way, they're given this law, and the law is to govern their relationship. So God's relationship with the Israelites and how they're going to relate to each other, the law provides guidance about how they're all going to relate to each other. And in the law, there is clarity about how to construct a tabernacle or a tent of meetings. This tabernacle is going to be the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. This is where the Israelites are going to go to worship God, to offer sacrifices to God. So the the Israelites are encamped, as it were, if you think maybe kind of like in a circle of all the different tribes, large uh, group of people. And then in the center of all the tribes is the tabernacle. It's the house of God. And so we're going to get all throughout Exodus, we have information about the construction of this tabernacle, this house in the center of the people of Israel. I've got a picture here of the tabernacle. Maybe some of you have seen uh, this picture, but or a picture like this of the tabernacle. But the tabernacle was in the center of the people, and it had an outer court that was surrounded uh, on all sides by a wall of tent curtains, probably somewhere in the ballpark of 50 yards long, maybe a little bit longer, but it's right in uh, that range. Not a huge space, but not a small space either. And here in this this uh, this outer court inside the the the, the frame of this uh, these curtains is where you found the altar of sacrifice, right? This is where the Israelites would come and they would bring their sacrifices there, and then um, you would have the tabernacle itself. So the tabernacle is that uh, smaller tent, sort of rectangular tent structure in the center of this uh, outer court, and the tabernacle consisted of two chambers, the holy place. And then the innermost room, the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, this is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And so worshipers could enter into the courtyard, this outer court, to make sacrifices at the main altar. But then the priests would enter into this tabernacle, and in the first chamber of the tabernacle, where they would make daily offerings and incense. But then into the Holy of Holies, into the innermost chamber, only the high priest could go. And he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement, which is what we talked about last uh, time, uh, last Sunday we were together. So the high priest only could go into this inner chamber to where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and that only once a year. 
All right, so that's the tabernacle. That gives you a sense of what we're talking about. And there's a lot in Exodus 35. I mean, really, there's a lot all throughout Exodus that describe in great deal the construction of this tabernacle, the precise measurements of it, what it's supposed to be made out of. And Exodus 35 I've chosen here is just kind of one of the synopsis passages that talks about the gathering of um, resources from the Israelites for the construction of the tabernacle. So it includes all the information about the sort of materials that will be used to to construct the coverings of the tabernacle. And in verse 6 is what I want to draw particular attention to. In verse 6, we read that the Israelites were to bring gifts of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, and fine twined linen. All right, this colored yarn and fine twined linen was used to make the curtains and the gates that separated the common from the sacred. So in this, that outer wall of tents, as it were, the, the gateway into the tabernacle outer, outer, um, outer court area that was going through one of these fine twined linen gates, and then into the tabernacle itself, there was this fine twined linen gate made of this scarlet uh, blue and purple yarn. And then the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was also made of this fine twined linen. So all of these gates, these entryways, as you move further into God's presence, are made of these fine twined linen gates. But I also chose this passage because I want to draw your attention to verse 19, because there's one other item in this text that is made of this same fine twined linen. The garments of the priests. The garments of the priests are made from the same material that these these curtains, these veils are made from. All throughout Exodus, we find this expression, fine twined linen. And we find it 28 times throughout the book of Exodus. And there are only two items that are made with this finely twined linen of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. The garments of God, the tabernacle, and then the garments of the priest. So God was holy, his priests were holy, and they were dressed the same. And then their clothing, as it were, was literally cut from the same cloth. And Exodus here is inviting us to think of the tabernacle as the garments of God. Indeed, the underlying Hebrew that we translate into English when it refers to the tabernacle, it refers to the veils and the tents coverings, and then it also refers to the priesthood uh, and to their garments of the priesthood. The underlying Hebrew gets a little bit blurred here at times. Sometimes the same Hebrew word throughout Uh, Exodus, and then on into Leviticus and Numbers, where we talk about these things in the text. Sometimes the same Hebrew word is translated as cloths when it's referring to the tabernacle curtains. So it would speak of the, the cloths of the tabernacle. And sometimes it's referred to, the same Hebrew word is translated as clothes when it's referring to the priestly garments. So there's this conception here of the tabernacle as the clothing, the cloth of God, in the same way that the clothing or the cloths of the priests are their coverings. So you think about the meaning of clothing. Right? The first time we see clothing in the Bible goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When God makes humanity, humanity is naked and unashamed, we read. But then when sin comes into the, 
equation in Genesis chapter 3, the first thing that humans do after they realize that they've broken on the inside, that things are not what they should be, is they go and they cover, cover themselves with clothing. Right? They cover themselves in clothing because they want to try to hide the shame that now attends to their existence as human beings. In the same way, sort of, the tabernacle is also God's way of hiding himself. But he's not hiding himself because of shame. He's hiding himself because he is holy. God veiled himself, not for his own sake, but he veiled himself for the sake of the people. We go on, we can read later in Exodus 34 about how Moses, as kind of the, the greatest of all the priests, the leader of Israel, he would go into the tabernacle itself, all the way into the Holy of Holies. And he would dwell in the presence of God and he would meet with God. But when he came out, his face was glowing. And it, it just freaked out all the people when he would come out of the tabernacle with this glowing face. And so they were terrified and scared of the presence of God that they saw on the face of Moses. And Moses had to put a veil over his face to cover the glory of God from the people. And all throughout the book of Exodus, when God draws near and his glory is unveiled, the people would flee in terror. They didn't want to be in the presence of the glorified God. And so God had to veil himself as he came to live amongst his people. He had to cover his glory. The unveiled glory of God was too much for the Israelites. It was like staring into the sun with lidless eyes. They just couldn't handle it. So when God came to live among them, he had to veil himself in garments so that he didn't overwhelm them. And that's what the tabernacle is. It's the clothing of God, the garments of God that covered his glory and his presence. So the main point that I want us to take from Exodus uh, here in this passage is that the tabernacle is the garment of God that mercifully hid the Israelites from his unveiled presence. All right, so that's the first Old Testament text. The second Old Testament text is in Leviticus 21, read for us already about the priests and how they were to conduct themselves, particularly related to their clothing and their garments uh, in Leviticus 21. It was customary in the days of the Old Testament, it's still a custom uh, in the Middle East today, for people to tear their garments as a sign of grieving. So in ancient times, a man would tear his garment, taking hold of the collar right here, and he would rip it downward, and he would tear his garment as a sign of grief or mourning. So people would tear their garments at national tragedy. They would tear their garments as a, as a sign of repentance in relation to their own sin. They would also tear their garments in the presence of the death of a loved one. And we can see this numerous times throughout the Bible. If you're a reader of the Old Testament, you'll find lots of occasions of people tearing their garments. David, in 2 Samuel 13, tears his garments. He gets this report that uh, all of his sons have been killed. It actually wasn't true, but he had got this report, and he was so grieved that his sons had died that he tears his garment and he weeps. Or Job, who gets a correct report that his, all of his children have, in fact, been killed. Job tears his robes when he hears of the death of his children. So the tearing of one's garments, the tearing of one's robes was a way of exposing one's grief. It was a way of venting one's sorrow. So rather than keeping all of your pain like locked up inside of you, as it were, when you, you tore your garments to expose all the grief that was in you out into the world, it was like opening up your soul for the world to see. And notably, in the passage that was read for us in Leviticus 
21, and then we also can see this in Leviticus 10, the priests were told that they must not tear their garments, not even in the, at the death of their father or mother. If there was ever an occasion to express one's grief, to, to let your grief be vented out for the world to see, it would be at the death of your parents. And yet the priests were told that they were not to tear their garments at the death of a loved one. Now, Moses doesn't say explicitly why the priests were not allowed to tear their robes, but when we consider that the priests wore the garments of God, it makes sense. The priests had to represent the people to God and God back to the people, and they had a public role. They couldn't rip the garments of God as a means of expressing their own private grief. All right, so that's our Old Testament context. Exodus, Leviticus, the tabernacle is God's clothing. The priests are not allowed to tear their clothing. So now let's move into Hebrews 9. So Hebrews chapter 9 is the passage uh, that we were actually in last week. We were in a little bit of a different part of it. We're going to overlap a little bit again. But all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is showing how Christ and his ministry is superior to the ministry of the Old Testament and the law. And so we're coming back again here into Hebrews chapter 9, where the author is specifically talking about the superiority of Christ in relation to the old tabernacle system and the, and the uh, sacrificial system. So in Hebrews 9, the author recounts the tabernacle system. He just kind of walks through some of the basic features that we've looked at already in Exodus 35, the practice of the priests, the items that are there in the sanctuary. But then in verses 6 through 8, the author draws particular attention to the two chambers of the tabernacle. Now, as we've already noted, only the high priest could enter into the innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Access to God was blocked. That's the point that's being made with this constricted access to God. God is still clothed and hidden. Again, this is such a contrast. We looked at this last week to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Humanity used to bathe in the presence of God. The whole of humanity ministered to God and on behalf of God in the midst of God's garden sanctuary. We were the priests, kings, and queens of the world. That's what we were made to be. We inhaled and exhaled the breath, the life of God. We stared into the beauty of the divine Son with unblinking, joy-filled eyes. That was our ex experience of God prior to sin. But then Genesis 3, all of that is swept away. God's presence became a terror. As God comes into his garden sanctuary in Genesis chapter 3, what do Adam and Eve do? Do you remember in the story? They run and they hide. They can't stand now to be in the presence of God. His presence has become a terror. God could only come to us now, only come to humanity hidden and behind a veil. That's all that we could tolerate until Jesus. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus enters into the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle, as it were. He passes through the outer curtain into the outer courts, and then he passes into the holy place, and then he passes through that final veil 
into the Holy of Holies. And he enters not by the blood of goats and bulls, but he enters by his own blood, his own living blood. That's what we looked at last week, right? The life is in the blood. Humans had no life to bring into the presence of God. We had to bring a substitute life. But Jesus brings his own life because his blood is not a dead blood. His blood is a living blood. And so he passes into the inner sanctum, into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, his own life. And then we look at the result in verse 12 of chapter 9. As Jesus entered by his own divine blood, he was able to secure eternal redemption for all of humanity. He didn't just gain access to himself, right? His blood just wasn't effective only for himself. But his blood being the divine blood, being the living blood of God, was powerful enough to grant access back to God through, for all of humanity. All of humanity in Christ is now welcomed back into the presence of God. Christ has reconnected the life of God, the breath of God, back to humanity as he passes through into the veil. Jesus is the true priest king. He's the ultimate fulfillment of which Adam was only a shadow. And Jesus entered the garden sanctuary of God. He reunited humanity back with the life of God. And through Christ, humanity is once again reinstated as the priest, kings, and queens of the world. What we could not do in ourselves, we could not enter into God's presence. We certainly couldn't give life back to the world. We didn't have it in ourselves. Jesus has done for us. He has brought us back into the presence of God. I don't know if you maybe have caught uh, this news story. It was back in 2013. There was a Nigerian named Harrison Ojigba Okine, who we're going to refer to as Harrison, because I think that's going to be simplest for me. Uh, But uh, Harrison, back in 2013, was the lone survivor of a 12-man tugboat crew. And somewhere in the midst of their duties, the ship flipped over, it sank upside down, down 100 feet to the Atlantic floor. Everyone perished except Harrison. He found refuge in the ship, trapped there in an air bubble. And he was alone for three days in this air pocket in the dark. He's isolated. He's cut off from life. And he's running out of air. He's using up the last of his air there. He has really no hope. And then after three days in the dark, divers finally found the location of the wreck. They don't think there's any survivors, but they find the location of the wreck. They go down to check for bodies, to recover the bodies. And there is Harrison still alive in the dark in this air pocket. And such a relief it must have been after three days in the dark, there in the, the, you know, the, the bottom of the ocean, running out of air to be reconnected back with the living. And I think Harrison's story is, in many ways, all of our stories. This is the story of the Bible, that the ship of our lives have sunk, and we're on the seafloor, trapped in a sunk boat with an air pocket, and we are slowly polluting our last remaining air with our own breath. And we need rescue. 
We can't save ourselves. We can't swim out to the surface. We have no resources within the boat with which to deliver ourselves. We need to be reunited with the life of God, the breath of God. And that's what Jesus does for us when he passes beyond the veil into the holy place. He brings humanity back into God's presence, into God's life. So to all my Christian brothers and sisters this morning, I don't have a uh, really involved point of application for you except to say this. Rejoice and be grateful. How wonderful and how marvelous that when we were lost, when we were trapped without God and without hope in the world, Jesus rescued us and has reconnected us with the life of God. Harrison's story reminds me of another uh, ancient person trapped, as it were, in the ocean, the story of Jonah. Let me read for you some of the things that he uh, thought and wrote in the midst of his, uh, 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 his peril, and then as he came out of it, he wrote this. He said, um, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, like us, like Harrison, trapped without hope in the depths of darkness, covered by our sin, in a little air pocket that is running out of air that we are polluting by our own breath. Christ comes and he delivers us from our peril and he reintroduces us back into the land of the living and into the life of God. To my non-Christian friends, thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to seize your chance for life while the air pocket still lasts. Listen to a bit more of Harrison's story. So he's down there, he's in the dark. He's been down there for three days. And then here's what uh, uh, the news article says. He had almost given up hope after three days when he suddenly heard the sound of a boat a hammering on the side of the vessel, and then after a while saw lights and the rising waters around him bubbling. He knew it had to be a diver, but he was on the wrong end of the cabin. So then Harrison recounts this moment. The diver came in, but he was too fast. I saw the lights, but before I could get to him, he was already out. I tried to follow him in the pitch darkness, but I couldn't trace him. So Harrison sees the bubbles. He sees the diver leaving. He dives under the water. He tries to swim to, to catch up to him, but he can't get to him in time. He's running out of air, so he has to swim back and go back into his air pocket. And could you imagine the feeling of despair to have come so close in that moment after three days thinking that the rescuers had come to get you and then the diver swims away, the rescuer swims away? Well, thank God for Harrison. The diver came back. There is a window, a season, a day, the Bible says, of salvation. 
The air pocket doesn't last forever. And the Apostle Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Seize the salvation that is before you while it still lasts. Jesus offers you now the life, the breath of God. All you have to do is be willing to leave your dying air pocket. This is the great exchange that the Bible talks about. Jesus giving up his life for your life and inviting you to give up your life for his life. He will give you his divine life if you give him your dying life. His divine life is sufficient to overcome your dying life. Jonah tells us that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Don't pay regard to vain idols. Don't set your hope in vain idols. Don't try to find your deliverance in vain idols. The only thing that can deliver us from the inevitability of death that waits for all of creation is the eternal life of God. Jesus has come from God to bring the life of God back to his creation. And Jesus offers us through faith, through grace, apart from any works or anything that we can do, he offers us the divine life of God, the breath of God back to us. Don't cling to vain idols and forsake the hope of steadfast love. Jesus has passed beyond the veil to bring us the life of God. Seize it while the opportunity is there. And then Mark 15, our last passage here, our fourth passage, I want to end with this. Mark's gospel records for us the death of Christ in Mark 15. In this passage, we actually see, as it will, as it were, in historical time, Jesus passing through the veil. He is entering with his own blood into the Holy of Holies. Mark's gospel records for us many striking things, but I want to draw our attention to one thing in particular, the tearing of the veil. We read in Mark's gospel that the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And I think it's important to ask, why was the veil torn? The author of Hebrews states that the presence of the curtain was a sign that free access to God was not available under the Old Covenant. So the removal of the curtain was certainly a sign that the atoning death of Christ had opened the way to God. But why was the veil torn? Why not just opened or pushed aside? We took Ella to the a hospital for an injury to her finger a uh, number of months ago. And of course, you go to the emergency room and you're in like one of those little waiting uh, you know, hospital beds. They got the curtain, right, to kind of give you a little bit of privacy. And then when the doctors come in to check on you, they pull back the curtain, they step in, right, and they talk to you, right? Well, what would it have been like if we were there? It's like 3.30 in the morning and we're waiting for the doctor to come. And then all of a sudden the doctor comes and he just rips the curtain apart and steps into the room. Well, that would have been, that would have been a little odd, a little excessive perhaps we would have thought, right? The doctor doesn't need to tear the veil. He just moves it aside, right? Why does the veil get torn? Why not just moved aside to symbolize that there is now free access into the presence of God? 
Let's think back what we saw earlier in Exodus and Leviticus. The garments of the tabernacle were the garments of God. And here is what I think we need to understand, or it gives us insight about the tearing of the temple curtain. Just as an earthly father tore his garment at the death of his child, so too the heavenly father tore his garment at the death of his son. Our heavenly father does not love less than a human father. He loves more than a human father. His love is deeper, is infinite, is without bounds. It's not hemmed in by human frailties and weakness. And how his heart must have grieved to see the racked and broken body of his son pinned to the cruel and cursed tree. And how the desperate cry of his forsaken son must have grieved his fatherly heart. And so as the son breathes his last, the heart of God breaks and the father rends the divine robe in two from top to bottom. What God had forbidden the high priests to do with God's clothes, God does with his own clothes. How great and awful the death of the Son of God, not only to us, but to the Father who loved the Son, who loves the Son with an eternal love. The tearing of the temple curtain was indeed an indication that the way into the Father's presence had been opened. But the tearing of the garment of God also reminds us that the way to life came at a great price and through great anguish, an anguish that God himself endured. Mark's gospel tells us in 15, here what we've read already, that the ground shook and the sky grew black And all of creation trembled. The unthinkable, the unimaginable had happened. The eternal son had died. The eternal father grieved. And the link between humanity and divinity was restored. It cost the father everything. As much as he had to spend his last penny, his most sacred possession, his son to reunite humanity back with himself. Now, Calvary folks, I love you all, but I don't know that I love you enough to put my children on a cross for you. Myself, maybe, on a good day, some of you. There's a few of you, eh, I'm not so sure. No, I'm just kidding. Myself, yes, I think, I hope that I'd be willing to, to go to the cross for you. But I don't know that I would put my children on a cross for you. And yet this is what God has done. That the Son took upon Himself humanity, human flesh. He took humanity into Himself. And then in His sacrifice, He killed the old humanity in Himself and raised up a new humanity. That's what God did for us, giving us His Son so that we could be restored Back to him. It's how much he loves us. Oh, what great love the Father has for us, John tells us in John's gospel. 
that he gave his only son to make us children of God. So don't be too familiar with the great gift of God's presence. The removal of the veil between you and him cost him great grief. He rent his garments in grief as a sign of how much it cost him to reunite, to be reunited with you. So enter freely into that presence that Christ has won for you. Enter freely into his presence, remembering the cost that was paid for it. God loves you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to bring yourself to him, to be healed, to be restored, to be renewed, to be forgiven, to be brand new and made new. Go to him, run to him, into the sacred place, the center, the inner chamber, the holy of holies, because Christ has paved the way. But don't ever become too familiar or cavalier with it because it has cost God greatly to pave the way and make it open for you and I to come to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need you. That is so much of what we do every Sunday as we gather here together. We confess that we need you and we thank you that in the midst of our need of you that you have sent your Son to draw us back into yourself, into your presence, to give us life. Lord, may we find our hope in you. May we not have regard for vain idols that ultimately can't provide the life that we need. May we find our hope in you, Lord. Help us to find our hope in you joyously, joyfully, but not cavalierly, Lord. Thank you for loving us in the way that you have. In your son's name we pray. Amen.